Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. This morning, in my series for my time with you this weekend and next Sunday, is the issue of the salvation controversy. And basically what I'm talking to you about are four subjects. Uh, what is faith, repentance, and then the issue of discipleship, and the whole issue of lordship. I wrote my dissertation on that subject. I brought a few of them with me if you want to see it. Uh, but it's easier listening to me than it is wading through that thing, believe me. And uh, so I've done quite a bit of study in this area, and I'm, I'm quite concerned that, that the gospel is being confused in many places by many people, many good and sometimes sincere Christians. You know you're in trouble when you're a world traveler and you see a sign in another country that says, English, well-speeched here. (laughs) One lady traveled the world and collected some signs that she saw in different parts of the world trying to translate their message into English. For example, she ran across a sign in a Hong Kong tailor shop that said, ladies may have a fit upstairs. (laughs) In a Bangkok dry cleaners, there was a sign that said, drop your trousers here for best results. In a Copenhagen airline office, a sign read, we take your bags and send them in all directions. (laughs) My favorite is in a Norwegian lounge where it says, ladies are requested to not have babies in the bar. (laughs) It seems like something was lost in the translation, wasn't it? Over 2,000 years ago, or almost 2,000 years ago, a very frightened man asked a very simple question. He said, what must I do to be saved? The Apostle Paul gave him a very simple answer, and us theologians have been arguing about it for 2,000 years. Takes a theologian to do that, doesn't it? But not just theologians, churches and pastors and seminaries and colleges and Christians are reading books of differing opinions and hearing different versions of what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be saved? What do I have to do to be saved? The issue involves the gospel itself. What is the condition for eternal life? That's what I'd like to talk to you about this morning. There's a lot of confusion out there. Of course, I'm quoting from Acts chapter 16, verse 31. The Apostle Paul answered the question very simply. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. His answer was very simple. But compare that to an answer of a modern day preacher in this true story, where after his message, a young man came forward and he began to talk to him. And he asked him, is there any reason why you should not become a Christian tonight? Can you think of any reason? And the young man said, no, I really can't. And so the preacher said, well, let me give you some. And he said for the next, this article says for the next few minutes, he began to explain the cost of being a Christian. He talked to the young man about his need to surrender his whole life, his future, his ambitions, his relationships, his possessions, and everything he was to God. Only if he was prepared to do this, my, this preacher explained, could Christ begin to give him eternal life. And then the preacher leaned closer to him and said, can you still not think of any reason why you should become a Christian tonight? And the young man said, well, I think I can now. And the preacher told him, in that case, don't become a Christian until you've dealt with every one of those reasons and you're willing to surrender everything to Jesus Christ. 
My friend, what is the biblical truth? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved? Or this long list of things that this preacher gave this unfortunate young man? I find a lot of confusion in the churches today about what does it mean? What is the condition for salvation? You know, and the unfortunate thing is some people can't even answer that question. Just weeks ago, in my office, sat a young lady who was opening a Christian counseling practice in our city. And I like to meet these counselors, and so I had invited her to come in and talk so I know whether I should refer people to them or not. She had gone to a well-known evangelical seminary in Fort Worth, and uh, she had graduated from there. And uh, here she was, a Christian counseling, offering people advice from the Bible. So I asked her a question. I asked many Christian counselors. I said, let's suppose that you knew that the person sitting with you for counsel was not a Christian. What would you tell that person about how to be saved? Let's, let's suppose that this person understood now that you've told them that Jesus, as God's son, has died on the cross for your sins, that they are sinners, that they need to be saved, that Jesus rose from the dead and he offers eternal life. And, but if they turned to you and they said, okay, I understand that now, what do I have to do to become a Christian? What would you tell that person? And she looked at me, her eyes got wide, her jaw dropped, and she said, that's a really good question. And she thought about it, and she stumbled, and she stuttered a little bit, and she said, boy, you ask really good questions. But I didn't want to take the credit. I said, well, you know, actually, the Bible asked the very same question in Acts chapter 16. What must I do to be saved? And I explained the answer to her. Isn't that a shame that a Christian counselor would not know the answer to such a basic fundamental question of our Christianity? There are all kinds of versions of the gospel out there. It is confusing for Christians. We have different gospels. We have twists and turns in our gospel message. We have the full gospel, whatever that is. I get that question a lot on the phone. People call me and they want to know what kind of church we are. Since we're a non-denominational Bible church, I'm sure Ed gets the same question. Are you a full gospel church? And I'm always tempted to say to them, well, actually, we're on a tight budget this year. We're just a half gospel church. Maybe next year we can. What is the full gospel? What is the full condition for salvation? You see, there's a lot of stake here. There's a lot at stake because if we don't know what the message is, how can we be confident in sharing it with others? If we don't know what the message is or confuse the message and we tell someone incorrectly, how can they become a Christian? Not only that, but I'm finding Christians everywhere are confused about whether they are genuinely saved or not. They lack assurance. And the reason they lack assurance is because they don't know what it means to be saved, how to be saved. What is the condition for salvation? When you lack assurance, you lack joy. When you lack assurance and lack joy, you serve God out of guilt instead of gratitude. There's a lot at stake, friends, in this issue, in this gospel controversy. What then is the condition for salvation? Now, Acts chapter 16, verse 31 says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. I'm actually not going to go into that passage too much today at all. I'll, I'll rather address that more next weekend. Instead, today, I want to talk to you about what it means to believe and give you four observations about this word believe, four observations on faith. The first is this. Faith is the only condition for salvation. Paul gave no other condition but believe. Only believe, just believe, simply believe. 
He didn't attach a list of things to do or not do. He did not say that you must repent of all your sins. And he was talking to a very sinful Roman jailer at the time. He did not say that he had to submit to Jesus Christ as the master of his life or any of the other things the preacher in our opening illustration said. Paul simply said to him, believe. He did not say you must do five steps, as some churches say, or four steps or three steps or even the Texas version, Texas country version, two step gospel. It originated on some Texas dance floor, I'm sure. You know what the strongest argument is that faith is the only condition for salvation is in your hand in the gospel of John. You know that the gospel of John is the only book in the entire Bible that claims it was written to tell people how to have eternal life. That is in chapter 20 in verse 31 of the book of John. There John explains his purpose for writing and he says, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So the book of John was written to tell us how to have eternal life. Doesn't it make sense then that if we want to know the condition for salvation, we should go to John first. Friends, when we go to John, what does he tell us about how to be saved? Did you know that the book of John says 100 times, actually 98, I'm going to use 100, a round number, 100 times that the way to receive eternal life is to believe. In all of the New Testament, the word believe is used for salvation only 150 times. Two-thirds of that, 100 times from the book of John. Believe. Now that should tell us something, shouldn't it? That should tell us something about how to present the gospel, about how to have eternal life. It certainly does. Take, for example, the simple verse, the favorite of everyone, John 3, 16. The first verse we memorize, the first verse we teach our children, the gospel in a nutshell, the Bible in one sentence we say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That beautiful little verse says the only condition for salvation is to believe. Now, friends, that is either true or it is not true. And if it is not true, we should not teach our children. John 3, 16, that's such an important verse. Nor make it the first that we memorize ourselves. And that guy at the football game that wears the T-shirt with John 3, 16, tell him to get a new shirt. It's not enough. John was preaching easy believism, an incomplete gospel, a half gospel. No, that's not true at all, is it? John wrote his book to tell us how to have eternal life. And 100 times he says, believe. Not just in John 3.16, but all through the book. Faith is the only condition for salvation. Let me give you a second observation about faith. Faith is simple. Faith is simple. We want to make it so complicated sometimes, but there's only one kind of faith. You either believe or you don't believe. You can believe a lot or you can believe a little. But faith itself is how we receive eternal life. I can have weak faith in a bad boat. I can have strong faith in a bad boat and still drown, right? I can have weak faith in a good boat and still be saved. In the same way, you can have weak faith in a strong Savior and still be saved. Faith is simple. There's only one kind of faith. But what is faith? Faith is simply being persuaded that something is true so that I trust in it. Believing something is true to the point that I will trust myself to it when it comes to eternal life, trusting my eternal destiny to Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done. We exercise faith all the time. 
When you got in your car and you started it this morning, you had faith that it would start and it would get you here, deliver you here. We have faith in a doctor. You go to a man you hardly know. He writes a prescription you cannot read. You take it to a pharmacist you've never met. He puts in there compounds and chemicals you've never heard of. And then he types on the label, take two a day, and you say, all right, well, that's faith. It's trusting something to the point that you're persuaded it is true so that you trust in it. You do it every day. There's nothing fancy about the faith the Bible talks about that saves us. It is simple. It is just being persuaded of the truth of something. You know, to illustrate that, John has a wonderful story in chapter 3 that I'd like to look at for a moment. Here, Jesus is talking to a religious leader, a leader of the Jews. He is a man who is all his life devoted himself to doing the things that would get him eternal life. And he comes to Jesus at night, and Jesus answers the question of his heart about how to have eternal life. He tells him he must be born again, and then he tells him how he can be born again. In verse 13, he actually refers to a story from the Old Testament in the book of Numbers, chapter 21. But here's what he says in verse 14. Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Can there be a more beautiful picture of the simplicity of what it means to believe? The simple look of faith. Just look at that serpent on the pole. You see, here's the story of Numbers chapter 21. You know it. They're in the wilderness. Moses is leading them through the wilderness. And the people complain bitterly against Moses and it says against God because God has provided for them food and they're tired of the food and they're ungrateful. And God, as punishment, sends fiery poisonous serpents among them and they begin to bite the people and some people die. Moses pleads for the people and God says, okay, fashion yourself one of these poisonous serpents out of bronze and put it up on a pole and tell the people whoever looks at the serpent will live. That's what God said in Numbers 21. Whoever looks will live. And that's what Jesus says here. It's just like that, he says, that whoever looks, whoever believes, verse 15, in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, should live. They didn't have to do anything but look. And yet a well-known Bible teacher, well-published, well-listened to on the radio, says in his book that these people had to drag themselves to look at that serpent on the pole. Oh, it's so hard to believe sometimes, isn't it, that salvation can be so simple. If God were to announce today that we could all be saved by looking at a serpent on a pole out here in the corner of the church grounds, there would yet be some people probably even in this group that would say, well, maybe I, I can do that, but I sure would feel better if I got baptized first, or don't you want me to walk an aisle, or isn't there a special prayer I can pray? Faith is so simple. God simply says, Believe, look, and live. Isn't it just human nature that we want to complicate what is so simple to begin with? But let's not confuse simple with easy. You see, because what some will accuse me of and us who preach the simplicity of faith is that you're just preaching that easy believism. Well, first, I would say if I'm preaching easy believism, so is John in his book. Right? But let's not confuse easy with simple. Something can be simple, but not easy. Isn't that true? Let me give you an example. On my 40th birthday, my wife surprised me. She got me a gift certificate for one free skydive. 
Now you have to wonder what your wife is thinking when she gives you a gift certificate for a free skydive. I took her word for it that she was fearing I might be going into a midlife crisis. I just needed to do something exciting and feel young again. Check my insurance to see if it had been raised, but no, it hadn't. And let me tell you something. It's not too easy. We went up in a little tiny plane after minimal instruction. And the way we do it, it's called a tandem jump. They actually strap you to a guy. He's on your back and, and you're linked up to him. Okay, you don't have the parachute. He has the parachute. You're trusting in him. You're trusting in things that he says and what he knows. He's the expert. You go up in this little tiny plane up 12,000 feet. And you look down on a miniature world. And it's freezing cold and everything's loud. And the wind's going by at 100 miles an hour. And I'm supposed to jump? That is not easy. Hey, but it's simple. <laughs> I mean, he says, one, two, three, let's go. And we went because I was attached to him. There's nothing simpler than falling out of a plane, right? But it's not easy. Let's not confuse those two things. You see, to say that it's simple to believe in Jesus as our Savior is one thing. To say it's easy is another. It's not easy to believe that God became a man. That he lived a perfect life. That he died on the cross for you and me. And that his sacrifice was sufficient for the whole world. That he rose again from the dead. And that 2,000 years later, he made a promise that you and I can cash in on. That is not easy. And some of you know what I'm talking about. When you look back at your own story, you know it was not easy for you to believe. But it was simple when you did. Third observation about faith is that faith is passive. You see, faith is not doing something in an active sense. Faith is just receiving something in a passive sense. Somebody might say, well, if you believe you're doing something, well, not really. You know, a man is home watching football on TV. He's not doing anything. Ask his wife. He's just sitting there. He's passive. He's a couch potato. All right. Let me let me look with you at another story in the book of John, chapter six. Jesus had fed the 5,000 with bread and fish, and the crowd now followed him across the Sea of Galilee because of the free food he'd been given. They're looking for more fish sandwiches. In verse 26, Jesus says, don't, you don't seek me because of the signs, uh, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. I know why you're here. You'd like to make anybody king that could give you a free meal. And he tells them in verse 27, do not labor. Don't strive so earnestly. Don't work yourself to it. A tither for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Why are you working yourselves up over just another meal? If you want to strive and seek after something, seek after eternal life. Well, you see, the Jewish mindset now was that they had to do something. And so look at verse 28. They said to him, What shall we do that we may do, that we may work the works? Of God. Notice the word is plural. We may work the works of God. To the Jewish mind at that time, living under 613 Old Testament commands, plus thousands of extrapolations and additions by the scribes and Pharisees, they had to do something. They watched the Pharisees. They knew they couldn't be as good as the Pharisees. What did we have to do? What do we have to do? Tell us, what are the most important things to do? Plural works. Jesus says to them, verse 28. 29, he answers them, this is the work, singular. This is the only thing that you have to do, that you believe in him whom he sent. Jesus said, there's only one thing to do, and that's to believe. 
they understood that he meant by that he meant believe because verse 30 says, what sign will you perform that we may see it and believe you? Faith is essentially passive. It is contrasted in the Bible with doing works or keeping commands and obeying. Faith is just receiving with an open hand what God gives us. Another illustration of that comes at the end of chapter 6. If you'll turn a page or look at the end, you'll see what Jesus said in verse 54. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Jesus compared believing to eating and drinking. How do we know that he's talking here about believing and not the Eucharist or the Lord's table or communion? Well, look at verse 47. He says, I say to you, whoever believes in me has everlasting life. And then he says, whoever eats my flesh, drinks my blood, has everlasting life. He's just using a word picture for us, as the book of John so often does. What a good word picture this is. The contrast works with the simple act of receiving something. Since when is eating hard work? If eating is hard work, some of us have been working too hard. Okay? What a picture. You just take something. You personally appropriate it. And you become what you eat. You are what you eat, right? You eat Jesus, his words of eternal life, and you yourself receive eternal life. Romans chapter 4, verse 5. The Apostle Paul reinforces this very idea. And he says there, Romans 4, 5, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. You see the contrast? Paul is showing that there is no fudging on this. To him who does not work, but believes. To believe is the opposite of work in the Bible, because believe is the only way we receive God's grace. When we work for it, it ceases to be grace. It becomes a debt, an obligation, and a payment. Faith is essentially passive. It is an open hand receiving what God has for us. My final observation about faith is that faith is accessible. Faith is accessible to everyone, anywhere, anytime. That comes out so beautifully again in the Gospel of John chapter 4 when Jesus is seated at a well in Samaria, that despised territory, that despised people, talking to a Samaritan woman who is an adulterous, immoral woman. And there he sits with this woman, talking to her about eternal life. She thinks she's getting water. He's talking to her about eternal living water. And he says to her in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. It's yours for the asking. That's the accessibility of faith. Just ask. And you will receive. That's how the Bible ends in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 17. Where we're told about the invitation that Jesus comes soon. And it says the spirit and the bride say come. And let him who hears say come. And let him who thirsts come. And whoever desires let him take the water of life freely. Take it freely. Just ask for it. It's yours. It's a free gift. There's no conditions attached. To the gift of eternal life. Think of that story of Jesus hanging on the cross with a thief on both sides. One thief mocks him. The other thief turns to him and says, in faith that he is the Messiah, he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, I tell you today you'll be with me in paradise. 
faith is accessible to a dying man in his last gasps of breath. To a man who can do nothing. You can't get baptized when you're nailed to a cross. You can't walk an aisle when your feet have a spike through them. You can't say a prayer. Or he could have, but he didn't. Jesus didn't say any of that. Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. His faith had been exercised. He had received. Jesus was giving. Nothing to do but believe. I had a young fellow in my congregation. His father was dying of cancer. He came, came to me and told me about this. And I said, well, have you talked to your father about the eternal life? And he said, well, I did. I shared the gospel with him. And my father said, well, I don't think it's fair that at the end of my life, after living for myself and living in sin all of my life, that I should ask God for forgiveness and eternal life on my deathbed. I said, tell him about the thief on the cross. Since when is grace fair anyway? It's not fair that Jesus died for you and me. That's what makes the gospel different. The grace of God. The wonderful, beautiful, matchless grace of God. Because God loves you so much. Faith is accessible because faith is simple. If it were not simple, it would not be accessible. It's accessible to a young child so that a child can believe and be saved. It's accessible to somebody on his deathbed who can do nothing except believe. Some years ago, I was in Ghana, West Africa, teaching at a Bible college. I had the day off because it was the 4th of July, and they observed, they didn't, uh, they gave us the day off, but no festivities, unless we offend the, the different country. I was out working in my front yard in this compound of several missionaries lived. We were sharing some quarters for the summer with these missionaries. And I heard the sound of a crowd coming down the dirt road that looped behind our compound. And I knew what it was because I'd seen it once before. They caught a thief. Now, in Ghana, when you catch a thief, you take justice into your own hands because provisions are few and, and, uh, and stealing is a severe crime. And if you call the police, they'll just let the guy go if they take a cut from what the guy stole. So you don't trust the police. You take justice in your hands. They would usually beat a, a thief severely. So I heard the mob coming down, and they came out by the gate. I walked out to see them. There were about 50 or 60, mostly young people. They were carrying sticks, rocks, a couple machetes, one big axe, and some rubber hoses. The tall fellow in the middle was very beaten. You could tell he was exhausted. He was bloody. He had a big gash in his head. Blood was pouring down his face. He looked very weak and tired. And oddly enough, he had a tire around his neck an automobile tire. When I came to the front gate, I looked at the crowd. They all paused and watched me to see what I would do. I was the only white person in this whole town besides the other missionaries. And they paused to see if I would say anything or do anything. But you know, when you're in another culture, you have to be very careful about interfering with the way they do things. I figured they would give him a good beating and, and he would learn his lesson and they would go on. That's what I had heard. They looped themselves around the compound out to the other side by the other missionaries' home. And about that time, a missionary come walking to me, a friend named Rick. Rick said, did you see the thief? I said, yes. He said, yeah, they're going to kill him. I said, what do you mean they're going to kill him? He said, they're going to burn him. What do you mean? Well, that you saw that tire around his neck. It's full of kerosene, and they're going to light it, and they're going to burn him. It's called a Nigerian necklace. So I said, well, we have to do something about this. We walked out to the compound to where this fellow had now fallen into the ground, exhausted. He was surrounded by the crowd. They were gleeful, and they were dancing, and they were joyful. He still had the tire around his neck. There was a man standing over him with the tin. He had just poured kerosene on the man. There was another young teenager there getting ready to strike a match. We said, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're sofu, we're preachers. We want to talk to this man. 
and we want to talk to you. Rick began to talk to the crowd. We asked them, is there anyone who had seen this man commit the crime or steal? No one stepped forward. That was odd. And while Rick was talking to the crowd saying, look, this man has been punished enough. Why don't you let him go? I bent down to talk to the man. I bent down. I said, what is your name? He said, Benjamin. I said, Benjamin, can you understand English? Yes. Benjamin, I may not be able to save your life, but I can tell you how to have eternal life should you die. And in the seconds that I had, I shared with him the simple but beautiful gospel of grace. I said, Benjamin, do you understand this? He said, yes. This message is continued on the other side. Please turn the cassette over. To make a long story short, we were able to finally calm the crowd down enough to get him on the back of a pickup truck, but they were very resentful that we interfered. We took him to a hospital where he lived, and he eventually fled from the hospital lest they seek revenge further on him. Whether I'll see Benjamin in heaven or not, I don't know. That's not really the point of the story. The point of the story is that I had a message for a dying man that could have been his last breath, that no other religion in this world could have given him. Do you understand that? That faith is so simple and so accessible. You can share it with anybody, anywhere, anytime. A thief on the cross, a thief in the mud, a young baby, a dying person. That's the beauty of the gospel of grace that comes to us through faith. My friends, let's keep the gospel simple. If that's what saves us, let's keep it simple. It is faith alone. In Christ alone, the Bible has serious warnings about changing that message. And yet it's being confused so much today. Let's share the gospel with people and tell them to believe. We don't need to give them a course in theology. We don't need to give them a, a Bible survey. Let's just tell them, you might have to explain what it means to believe. You might have to explain that they're sinners. In fact, these days you're having to explain more and more because people are knowing less and less about the Bible. But let's, let's stick to what the Bible said. It is believed. Only believe, simply believe, just believe, and explain what that means to them. Like you trust in the chair where you're, where you're sitting. Like you trust in the car that you took there. Like you trust in the airline when you buy a ticket for them to get you from, your, from here to your destination. Like you trust in a lawyer or a doctor. It's just believe. What a simple message. So simple that millions miss it. It's so simple that you here. And now, at this moment, can have eternal life by simply trusting in Jesus as your Savior. Have you done that this morning? Have you done that? Have you come to him and simply looked to him? There's nothing you can do. There's no deeds to be done. There's no commands to obey. There's no reformation of life that needs to take place. It's just looking at Jesus and believing what he has said in his promise and receiving that for yourself. You know the reason God made it so simple? Because he loves us. God wouldn't put obstacles in our way. He cleared the obstacles. He did the hard stuff. Now all we have to do is walk through the door. Isn't that nice? I tell people all the time there's only two religions in the world. There's the religion that you have to do something, and there's the religion where it's all done for you. The religion of do, the religion of done. Where are you trusting in today? Jesus has done it all for you. Will you trust him? Will you believe? Let's pray. Our Father, it's hard to imagine the kind of love that would do all this for us. Send his son 
the kind of love that would watch a son sacrifice, be sacrificed and die in great suffering. But we, we know, Father, that you love us and that you have offered the gift of eternal life to any who believe. And we thank you that it is so simple. But let that simple message not be missed by people who would doubt your love and your promise. And if there's one person here this morning, Father, who needs that eternal life, I pray that that would be settled in their heart today. That they would ask, I know you'll give, but they will gratefully receive. And I pray in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. For more resources or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.